0: I have shared in my writing, I'm scared to speak at faculty meetings sometimes. I've been practicing and studying and teaching law for now 27 total years. I should not be afraid to speak at a faculty meeting. There's no money at stake and no one's going to die. <laughs> I'm scared. Welcome to
1: The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Defense Never Rest. I'm your host, Tricia Baxter, and I'm super excited about today's episode because I think it's something many lawyers and claims professionals struggle with, which is public speaking. We all think we should be 100% okay with it, that it shouldn't make us nervous, that it shouldn't make us sweat or worry or anxious, but the fact of the matter is, is that it does for so many people. There are many lawyers that I know, myself included, that have struggled with public speaking and controlling the nerves that happen with that. And if you're somebody who has that fear, and maybe that fear is ever so slight, or maybe it's debilitating, whatever it may be, whatever spectrum you're on, this is the episode for you. Today's guest is Professor Heidi Brown. She's written a couple books on lawyers and their, you know, being an introverted versus extroverted lawyer. She's also written a book about really the, some of the fears that we have. And she's written articles on, specifically on fear of public speaking. It was a fear that she had when she entered law school and through the first 10 years of her practice. And it wasn't until she really confronted it head on and came up with a system to address it that her life flourished. And she said it was huge difference between pre you know pre mindset work and then after and now she's speaking in front of 600 people and you know loving it so we are I'm so happy for her for her to come on the episode today I'm so happy to talk about what she went through and then how she went about addressing it and making it something that didn't stop her in her tracks so without further ado professor heidi brown she's the director of legal writing program at brooklyn law school well hey heidi welcome to
0: the episode how are you hi i'm fine thanks so much for having me
1: so i have to admit that um when i started researching you after you agreed to come on the podcast i found out that you went to uva And you were at UVA the same time that I was at Virginia Tech. You were at UVA Law School when I was at Virginia Tech undergrad, so we're rivals.
0: We are. I saw that on your bio, too, this morning.
1: (laughs) So I'm like... I, ha- I have a cavalier on my on my podcast. How could I? I'm 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 giving out to my hokey fans.
0: So well, now that I'm a New Yorker, I always root for all the Virginia schools. So okay, you're, well that's that's good. That's good.
1: That's good. Well, <laughs> I think you're my first Virginia person on this podcast. There's not a lot of Virginia people in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York area. At least not in my circle. So I'm 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 happy to have you on. Um, before we get into the meat of the episode, let's talk about. Give us a brief overview of your legal journey and where you are now.
0: I have had a little bit of a circuitous journey. I I went to University of Virginia Law School, as you mentioned, and I immediately went into law practice in Northern Virginia for a construction litigation firm. So I didn't go to law school thinking, oh, I'm going to be a construction lawyer. I didn't even know what that was. But I was very excited to get a good paying job, both my summers in law school. And so I ended up in that firm really hard-hitting, aggressive litigation firm, but it was a boutique firm, so so sort of medium-sized. I got great training, did a lot of research and writing, but we're, we were kind of thrown into the fray very early on in our careers, which for me, as, as we'll talk about, was very terrifying. I stayed at that firm for six and a half years. Then I wanted to move to New York for just relationship reasons. I worked in big law for a year and then a small smaller boutique litigation firm that had spun off from my original firm. So I I was kind of the chief brief writer at that firm and that led me into writing a book about litigation and then eventually um, got me into teaching legal writing. I've been doing that for 12 years. I finally, about five years ago, stopped practicing law and teaching at the same time. I was basically working a 1,000 hours a week, um, which was fun, but I needed to, now at the point in my life, um, I really wanna focus on teaching and writing about these topics.
1: So where are you right now? Where are you teaching?
0: I am teaching at Brooklyn Law School. I live in New York City. I teach at Brooklyn Law School, and I direct the legal writing program at the law school.
1: So I reached out to you uh, for this episode because I, I had discovered an article that you read about fear of public speaking. And I think everybody, whether you're a lawyer or not, has that, can relate to public, spirit, public speaking, people are more afraid of that than jumping out of an airplane. Like, I think you maybe even made that correlation in your article. So I reached out to you to see if you'd come on and talk about it. Before you get into the meat of it, though, how did you come to write and be concerned with this topic?
0: I always had an extreme fear of public speaking. And and so many people have always said, well, why did you become a lawyer? Well, I went to law school because I loved research and writing. And I honestly thought I could find my way and that if I just practiced public speaking enough, I would get used to it. So I, I struggled in law school with performance. I, I was never the kid with my hand in the air. I, I froze when I got cold called. I, I have a really robust blushing response. So I turned beet red. I would sweat, but back then I just thought there was something wrong with me or that there I had a weakness that everybody else didn't have and that if I just prepared and practiced a lot, it would go away. And when I worked at the litigation firm, I thought the same thing. I would be so prepared for depositions or, or courtroom appearances or negotiations, but I was terrified every time. And and again, I just thought there was something wrong with me. None of my friends at, at the at the law firm had that issue. They seemed to love it. Same in law school. I mean, all my classmates were just raring to go for moot court arguments and simulations. And I was scared. I used to literally like hide in the ladies' room and, and uh, rock myself back and forth <laughs> um, to talk myself into it. And um, it was a struggle, really, for 15 long years. Um, I I wasted a lot of time thinking there was something wrong with me and I didn't know how to process it. And I was doing all the wrong things, listening to all the wrong messages from our society. And it was really only until I started teaching legal writing and I saw my my best, strongest writers, my most thoughtful analysts, my, my most creative problem solvers in the classroom were also students who were afraid. And, and I thought, oh man, I, I need to hopefully save them the 15 years of agony and angst that I went through, but I need to study this and figure it out for myself first. So then I can hopefully help students avoid that stress and anxiety that just really took a toll on me over the years.
1: Did you have that same fear before going into law school or is it something that you kind of discovered once you got into law school?
0: Now, in high school i wasn 't afraid to speak in class. I was a really good student I loved school i 've always loved school, hence why i 'm a teacher now, professor now um, i I remember when I reflect back on high school being able to get up in front of my classmates. I went to a very small all girls school and I was a nerd so so school was sort of my thing and I took a lot of language I studied French and I was not scared at all back then to just speak speak in French or like Get up in front of the assembly and and speak about different issues in college. I basically hid. I mean, I I went to UVA for undergrad and I I loved again every minute of college. I took a ton of different language classes and I remember in my large lecture classes. I was I had always done the reading, but I was never the student with my hand in the air and and my professors in college didn't call on us. At least I don't remember them calling on us. Then I walked into law school and it was rough. (laughs) I remember being cold called in my civil procedure class. I've written about this in in my books and stuff, and I had done the reading. I I knew the rule. It was about diversity jurisdiction. I'll never forget it. I knew the rule, like the back of my hand, and the second I was called on, I froze, and my face turned really red, and I, I messed up the geographical answer about the corporations being citizens of different states and all my classmates kind of chuckled and I was mortified and it just got worse from there. Um, So I think to your question, I didn't notice it as much until law school. And then honestly, 15 years of, well, 18, three years of law school and 15 years of practice, it, it was brutal. That aspect of my life was really difficult.
1: And I think so many people can relate to that. I certainly can relate to it. I had very much the same experience and I've struggled with anxiety and public speaking um, probably for the first five to 10 years of my practice. And then I, I don't know if I did some mindset work or whatever, and I, I got much better, about it. I I started looking forward to it a little bit, but I can relate to that. And I remember in college, my major, I was an economics major. This was before I knew I was going to go to law school, but I was an economics major. And I think I was getting a, a bachelor of science and the economics side. And that program required a public speaking class. But then I saw the economics on the bachelor of arts side that didn't require public speaking. So I changed for that reason. I was like, do I don't have to take a public speaking class? Like that petrified me. And I did, I switched. I, I, and I, I thought something was wrong with me. I, I saw... Other people in college that were so comfortable with the spotlight on them and them talking in front of other people, I had that same mindset too, and you're right once you get to law school it's like it's amplified a hundred times because the the teachers that use that Socratic method it it's so it's so part of the tradition of law school that you then again feel like oh my God, I'm in law school. I'm, I'm stepping into an environment that has exactly what I fear doing the most. I, I wonder, so I had that same experience. I just wanted to share that with you because you and I have the same kind of mindset. And then I wonder, to your point, when I saw other people that were, you know, the, we all had those people in law school that raised their hand every five minutes and the people that seemed to just be so eloquent were, or maybe they were nervous or, or not, but when you saw the other people that you thought did not have a problem with it, do you think they really didn't have a problem with it? Or was it more of kind of that imposter syndrome? Like I'm going to fake it till I make it. Maybe they were thinking the same thing that you did.
0: I I think there is a lot of faking it till you make it. And I I personally have issues with that slogan. It doesn't work for me. Um, But I, even now as a teacher, I see my students who, who maybe don't know the answer are, are still willing to step in and, and get to the answer by talking about it out loud. So they're not as afraid of looking foolish or looking incompetent. They they feel like, hey, you know, I'm going to try. I always felt like my answer had to be perfect the second I opened my mouth, and that if I didn't know the answer, I hesitated. That meant I was weak or or that I wasn't as smart as my colleagues. So. I just wasn't as self-aware enough to realize that nobody really knew what they were talking about at first. We all had a learning curve in law school. It was a new language. I didn't even know what half the words meant in my, you know, my nightly reading. But, but I felt like in law school, no one ever said out loud, "Hey, it's okay. Like, we don't know this stuff yet. It's, it's okay to not have. Even if you're put on the spot in a Socratic dialogue, if you don't know the answer, let's stay in the conversation. Let's." Let's see what's holding you uh, or what's posing an obstacle to your understanding. Those kind of conversations were not happening when I was in law school. And the faking it didn't work for me. I felt like maybe it worked for other people. And they all seemed confident and happy and thriving in in that environment. But I, I was really struggling a lot.
1: And we both went to law school in the nineties. I you're in the, the early part of the nineties. I was in the latter part of the nineties and I, and I don't remember any, anything like that either. No, there was no really focus on a mental health. I don't know if mental health was really big in the nineties as much as, as it is a topic now. And I don't even know if they're doing it in law school now, but I think that's such a great point is just that recognition of what exactly um, is happening in that moment of that question. It's okay to not know. It's okay to get the answer wrong. The purpose of the Socratic method is to get you thinking. It's not necessarily for the right answer. It's to for you to do a deep dive and learn that analytical skill set that you'll need later on. But I don't know how much of that is explained even now. I have no idea.
0: Yeah, it's, it's- it's almost that there's, at least when I was in school and to a point now, there was this expectation that you sort of came to law school knowing what you were getting into and, and knowing what the Socratic method was and, and knowing what an oral argument looks like. I didn't know any of that. My dad was a minister. My mom was a piano teacher, interior designer. I didn't know anything about law at all. And I, But I felt like all my friends at school did have that either had that experience or, or already knew they wanted to be a certain type of lawyer and i felt like there wasn't enough explanation of why we did the Socratic method what like you just described like what the point of it is how it's supposed to work how you're not you're, you're not supposed to always know the answer it's about you know testing your ideas and theories and that's that's a positive thing that that can be a fun thing it doesn't have to be a scary thing same thing with oral arguments i thought Everybody had to be perfect at it. You had to de- be able to deal with the interruptions from the judges, keep your cool. But, but no one ever taught us how to do that. We just were supposed to be excited about doing it for the first time. I was a mess. I, I think I blacked out, like it was terrible. And I'm still traumatized by that. So my goal now in teaching law is to be very transparent about why we do things. Why are we asking a question this way? Um, you know, I told my students, listen to the patterns of the questions. Um, don't worry about the answers your classmates are giving. Try to try to detect a pattern in your professor's questions because they, they do. Everybody has a pattern of, of the way they think and, and analyze. Same thing with oral arguments. Let's talk about how to prepare, not, not substantively, but mentally and physically and emotionally. Um, that definitely was not happening when you and I were in law school. It's starting to happen now. And as professors are having these conversations, as students are really insisting on it, that you know, we need to learn how to do it before we're made to do it.
1: Well, let's go back to your early litigation experience and the techniques that you tried. So if you're preparing for an oral argument, you know the anxiety, the sweating, the blotchiness, all that's going to come the internal dialogue in your head, I can only imagine how negative that was. Like how, what are the techniques that you tried at first?
0: At first, so most of my performance scenarios in my, the early years of my practice were depositions and negotiations, but we, my cases were such that it would take a really long time between filing a complaint and going to trial. So we did a ton of depositions, really intense, mostly male attorneys on the other side of the table for me. And like in law school, I thought, okay, if I just force myself into these scenarios, like go blazing in there, eventually all the scaries will go away. Um, So I sort of did this, just do it mentality. Just like in law school, I signed up for trial advocacy classes. I can't believe I did that. (laughs) Um, I forced myself into situations. So same thing in practice. I thought, okay, I'm just gonna force myself into this. I always was substantively prepared. I had more deposition outlines and tabs and post-its and highlighters and exhibit boxes. I, I was very substantively prepared. And the, the other thing I did was I, I tried to listen to all those slogans and those messages, like the great Nike slogan, just do it. I mean, that's probably the greatest athletic slogan of all time, but for me doing that as a lawyer, young lawyer, it didn't, address any of the stuff we're talking about it was just basically barrel in there in your in your fancy suit and your box of exhibits but don't think about the mental and the emotional and the physical just blow in there intellectually and substantively and that really did not work for me i I sat across the table from these very aggressive confident older male construction attorneys and they could see it in my face like the second i would blush they knew they had me, or I thought they knew they had me, and I I kept going in every single dynamic. I, I pushed through it, but it it really took a toll, and again, every time I thought, oh, you're just weak. You know, you just need pr- more practice. You just need to keep doing it, keep just doing it, and I never stopped to think about why that just do it or fake it till you make it mentality wasn't working for me, and that totally might work for other people, but it did not work for me. I just kept doing the same thing over and over again and and expecting brilliant happiness and success. And I was not experiencing that.
1: (laughs) So the level of anxiety and the, the reactions that you had didn't decrease as you did more of them. They stayed the same. So- that's like the definition of insanity right doing the same thing over and expecting a different result and and i think that does work for some people i think it does for some people repetition removes the fear you know the you you take the unknown to the known and that removes the fear but it's not for everybody so we can't expect that we're going to get the same results by putting the same Expectations or methods on the same on, on everybody. So I love the fact that you talk about this. Is that that traditional advice of "fake it till you make it"? Just get in there and do it. Enough experience will 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 shoot you over whatever hump that you're. It doesn't work for everybody. No, and it, and it didn't work for you.
0: It absolutely didn't work for me. What ultimately worked for me is some repetition and and entering into those scenarios again, but with awareness, like complete awareness of what I was afraid of and really getting specific about what I was afraid of, but then repeating the scenario, but with awareness about what is happening to me mentally at the time in anticipation of the event, but also the second I step in. I was nervous coming on this with you today. So it's the mental, what, what the heck is going on with me mentally, emotionally, which is different from the mental. And then for me, the physicality is, is huge. I, mean, I once I actually got to know why I was blushing, I still blush, but my relationship with the physical manifestations of my stress completely changed. So I, I agree that repetition, we, we can't just avoid these situations forever. We want to be good at it. But we, for me, as people like me just repeating an event. You're right. It's the definition of insanity. Unless you change some aspects of it, it's, you're always going to have the same result. And for me, that change was awareness. Intense, sometimes uncomfortable study of myself, and then having a plan on the mental, emotional, and physical, not just the substantive.
1: Well, and let's talk about the, the, the self-talk for a second before we move in the kind of the techniques that you have used now that help because i think this is so important i remember sitting in that law school class and watching the person so easily raise their hand and me being petrified of it and thinking how could i possibly be a lawyer if i can't even raise my hand like that that's that negative self talk if you don't aren't aware of it it's very dangerous uh, i'm very aware of it now <laughs> so it's much easier to handle and and change course, what were some of the things that you would say to yourself as you're going through this process, before you got to the fixing process, if you will? Not that there's anything that needs to be fixed, but you know what I mean? What were some of the things in your head that that you would say to yourself?
0: Uh, It was not pretty. It was always things like, oh, you're gonna turn red. They're gonna know that you're scared. Why are you so weak? Um, They're gonna know you're not as smart as they are what are you even doing here? You're not cut out for this. Everybody else is better than you. Stuff like that. Really, really just bad stuff. Other things like, you know, your voice doesn't matter. You know, who are you to have an opinion about the law? Um, It was really, really bad. And it was only until I started this process. So I I wrote a book called The Introverted Lawyer. And when I was writing that book, I read a ton of material about introversion, but also anxiety and shyness, and social anxiety, performance fears. And a lot of this listening to our self-talk w- were, was fe- were featured in those books. And I, a lot of the books prompted me, I think it was one called Speak Without Fear that was written by a woman named Ivy Nastat. And she recommended that you actually listen to that awful, unpleasant soundtrack, like take some time listen to it, listen to every word and write it down. And it was only until I wrote down all those terrible things that I just said to you that I realized I was telling myself that litany of unpleasantness every single time I stepped into the law school classroom, the depositions, the courtroom, negotiations, whatever, over and over and over again. Of course I felt terrible. And, but the next step for me was figuring out where I had, where I had heard that and why I Either misinterpreted or interpreted those messages as being true, and then what I could do about it. And that Ivy Nastack book also says, you know, this isn't a blame game. We're not going to call up our high school volleyball coach and say, you ruined my life. Um, but it is really important to try to reflect back on, on your childhood or adolescent, adolescence or situations where someone who you thought had a position of power, authority, or influence over you said things, maybe in a well-meaning way, but then we then either misinterpret or interpret accurately, uh, but then layer on top of it over and over again, these negative um, statements about our abilities that just aren't true. Maybe they were true at one point, they're not true now. And, And for me to realize where some of those messages had come from and then realize, you know, 20 years had passed and I was still telling myself this stuff. I don't even know if some of those original messengers are still alive. So like, why am I inviting them into every performance? They are not invited anymore. It's a complicated, not really complicated. It's a simple process. It's it's um, a hard process to listen to yourself and write it down and then reflect. But then it's really incredibly liberating when when you realize, oh, wow, this is, This is what I'm telling myself, and I don't need to tell myself that anymore. If I do, I can catch myself and then reframe my attitude and my approach as I enter into that scenario that I'm totally prepared for.
1: And I want to do a deep dive into the process. Um, But before I get to that, just one, I guess, the million-dollar question. Can you have a fear of public speaking and be a litigation attorney?
0: Yes, you absolutely can.
1: So the fact that you have it doesn't mean you have to give up the career.
0: A thousand percent. It I so wish that I could go back and be my litigation self, knowing what I know now about my public speaking. Because I was terrified of public speaking throughout that entire time period in my life. And people used to say, Well, why'd you go to A, why'd you go to law school? B, why'd you become a litigator? You should have gone and, and done something out. They always said transactional law, but you still have to speak. You have to negotiate. <laughs> so those messages about how we shouldn't be litigators or any type of lawyer if you're not in love with public speaking are just not helpful. They're not. We can absolutely be incredible public speakers. And and not that I think I'm so great at it, but I literally make my living on public speaking now. I, I get up in front of my students and teach, and I talk to law schools and, and law firms and bar associations all over the world now. Like, I can't believe this is my life. And it's, it doesn't go perfectly and I'm still scared, but I can do it. And I know now that I can do it well if I, if I practice what I'm talking about.
1: Well, let's talk about the system that you created because it's a step-by-step system to some extent, um, but it's, it's a daily practice. Would you say it's a daily practice of what you do?
0: Yes, yes. It's and not is, it, daily practice.
1: is it something you set aside time for, or is it like something oh, I'm driving in the car and I'll just, I'll think through this process. How does that work for you?
0: No, I set aside time for it because I know that you use the word fix earlier. I know that I'm not fixed. Like this is not something you can flip a switch and, Oh, I'm, I'm perfect now. Um, it's, it's a, something that I know is going to creep up. As I mentioned, I was nervous about talking to you today, and this is my favorite subject in the whole world. (laughs) But my nervousness, my anxiety, my fear does reoccur often and in weird moments when it quote unquote shouldn't, which I can elaborate on. So I spend at least a half an hour every morning doing some stuff which might sound really touchy feely, but I'm I'm really big on the, the author Julia Cameron wrote this book called The Artist's Way. And for about a decade now, I've been practicing one of the things that sh- that I learned from her, and that's just writing three pages of longhand stuff into like, not, not typing on a computer, but literally handwriting out in the morning. And I do, it. I'll get up, I'll make my pot of coffee, and, and it's the first thing that I do every day. And I've just found that to be incredibly helpful for this process that we're talking about, because my fears come out in that writing. Whatever I've been subconsciously thinking about as i sleep or whatever i'm worried about that day will come out in that writing but then at least i've named it i know what i know what i'm dealing with and so that's that's just one tangible thing that i do every day and then i know we'll get to the the physical but i make sure that i i spend at least an hour every single day especially during this pandemic exercising because feeling Powerful for at least, an, feeling physically powerful is a huge stepping stone to me being able to do this now. And because now I can remind myself when I, when the fear does come back and I, I'm, I've shared in my writing, I'm scared to speak at faculty meetings sometimes. I've been practicing and studying and teaching law for now 27 total years. I should not be afraid to speak at a faculty meeting. There's no money at stake and no one's gonna die. <laughs> I'm scared, but I can remind myself okay, well you didn't pass out in a 60 minute boxing session yesterday or, you know, running miles around the track. You're not gonna pass out. Let's just, you know, recalibrate and move on. So those are really the two things that I do every single day. And then if I have a a performance, like I consider this a performance, I have some rituals that I do before I, I step into the moment that are part of that process. I love that,
1: and I, I can't wait to get to the physical part because I, uh, I'll, I'll, we can talk more about that yeah. later. But let's get it. Let's get into the steps. The first step—you've already talked about some of them. The first, what is the first step, and and let's just call it a mindset uh, training or a, a mindset session that you have with yourself. And what's the first step that you recommend people do?
0: So I've, I've kind of broken this down. There, there's really, I mean, I can make it three steps, four steps, seven steps, but I'm going to tell you sort of the the three-step chronology that that has helped me. Part of it is um, like comparative fearlessness. So one one thing that I started doing in this process was assessing aspects or scenarios in my personal life, not my professional life, my personal life, in which I absolutely feel powerful and fearless. I am not afraid whatsoever. But these are situations that my family, my my very um, conservative parents and and some friends and, and society would say, well, you should be afraid in those situations. Why are you doing that? Don't do that. That's scary. But in those situations, I'm not afraid. I love it. I thrive. I'm happy. And then I compare that to scenarios in my lawyering life. My life as a lawyer or law professor back when I was a law student. Or society is telling me or the profession is telling me you shouldn't be afraid you signed up for this but i am afraid and then figuring out what the difference in those scenarios is so and that's i think this is a fun process because you realize like for me there's two aspects of my personal life in which i feel completely like a rock star and one of those is is when i'm exercising and and i'm not and i never consider myself to be an athlete but it's become a huge part of my life, fitness, and I take boxing lessons now, as I mentioned. And when I am with, with my um, hand wraps and my gloves on, even though I'm beat red and I'm sweaty, and <laughs> I feel so strong and I'm not afraid. But my friends or my family will say, oh, that seems so intimidating, why are you doing that? You're gonna get hurt, but I'm not afraid. But I am, again, afraid to speak in the faculty meeting. So I compare those two scenarios. The other scenario in my personal life where I feel powerful is when I travel. I love to travel alone. Um, Before this pandemic, I wasn't afraid, I never was afraid to get on a plane, fly to a foreign country, try to speak the language, figure out the currency, public transportation. I love doing that. But some people would say, well, that's scary. Um, So that was a huge step for me to realize why I feel powerful in those scenarios, but I feel scared speaking in public. And it to me, it came down to a fear of judgment. I, I'm tremendously afraid or I was I still am, but um, I, I was afraid of judgment, of criticism. I have a, a shame issue, so I was afraid of public shaming in certain circumstances. I was afraid of exclusion and I was afraid of rejection. But until I did that comparative process, I didn't know why, I didn't know those things. I mean, I knew them probably theoretically, but not practically. Okay, now I have something I can deal with. So that's step one. Do you want me to go into?
1: Yeah, well, let me, let me just okay. stop there for yeah. a second because there's a couple of things that are going on right there. One is you're doing that comparison, which is beautiful, by the way, because everybody has something in their life that they, that they crush, yes. you know, and they crush in the face of what some people would, would be fearful of. Everybody has that thing where they get from their friends, of Amy, I can't believe you do that you know? uh, And and to identify that, I don't know if people do that regularly as an exercise. So to do that and then compare that and then take a deep dive of what is the, what exactly are you afraid of? I was on a conversation yesterday or two days ago with a girlfriend of mine who's been wanting to get into real estate investment for three years. And she's like, but I'm afraid. I'm like, you need to ask yourself, what are you afraid of? What exactly are you afraid that the the property is not going to be profitable. Are you afraid you can't do it? I mean, what, what exactly are you afraid of? So you you're doing that exercise. Let me identify uh, as targeted as I can, exactly what would happen to me and my worst case fear. And that's huge. I think.
0: It is huge. And and to the first part, you're right. Everybody has an aspect of their life in which they crush it. And it's going to be different for all of us. And, and, and to analyze what about that experience makes us excited or inspired—that's huge, first of all. And then you're right; it's 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 amazing when we can can nail, can can drill down to get exactly and and say out loud what we're afraid of. And we can't be vague. We can't be too overarching about it. it has to be really specific. I'm afraid when I'm. I, I mean, I'm divulging all my dark right. secrets here, but like in a faculty meeting, I'm afraid they're gonna make fun of me behind my back. Like that's such a high school or elementary school feeling, but I feel that. I just turned 50 years old. Like I can't believe I'm still afraid of that, but I am. And so for me to know that, then I can deal with it. I can, I can work on the mental and physical side. So when I feel that fear of rejection or exclusion, I know what I can do to, to um, reframe that in my mind make myself realize it's a lot of times it's an unrealistic fear, or if it's realistic, who cares in, in, the, in the scheme of things, but I, I can make it practical and, and do something about it. But until we name it, and, and like you mentioned with your friend, until you're identifying exactly what you're afraid of, not just that you're afraid, but why, what, and, and then we can figure out what to do about it
1: yeah like, I think for me it was I was afraid people would think I was stupid, mm-hmm. and then I'm like, "But why do I care? And I have, I, I have a life coach because I, I love her, and she we do a mindset um, coach every once a week, and but I do a, I do a mindset every morning, I get my, my mind in the right place, and it's like a shield. An invisible shield comes over me so the day doesn't penetrate my head (laughs) because you do have a lot of outside forces that are trying to get in there and tell you how you're not any good. But I, I, I love that part of that. It's, it's, why do I care if people think I'm stupid? And she says to me all the time, um, you, you can't, what is it? What other people think of you is none of your business. Like, and it's, it's a beautiful saying. And somebody else said that to me this morning, but I, it's so important. So doing that mental exercise and it's something about saying it out loud, or especially writing it on a piece of paper that frees that a little bit from having a hold on you.
0: Absolutely. I love your invisible shield (laughs) imagery too, because I feel like when I do my morning pages, the Julia Cameron morning pages, I'm doing that too. I'm, Getting it all out, so then I I have this sort of protective shield around me, and then when I exercise and I walk away from the exercise, I just feel like, okay, I can do. Nobody better mess with me right now. Right, <laughs> it's so empowering.
1: Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I, I, you know, I about three years ago, I did I read the Miracle Morning or Morning Miracle by Hal Elrod, and he has this morning ritual and a lot of its mindset, uh, and I did that for a year, and I had that invisible shield. And then I stopped and that shield eventually wore away, which is why I'm back to coaching and getting my mindset, um, morning mindset stuff set up again is because you you lose it. You got to do it every day or you have to have some regularity to it. But um, all right, let's move on. So you've identified what you crush in life. You've compared it to what, you know, the public speaking, you've identified exactly what you're afraid of by getting up and not saying the right thing, or being blotchy, or, or sweaty, or stressed, or whatever. What's the next step?
0: The next step is the mental piece. So earlier we were talking about kind of identifying those messages. So, so this is really two parts. One, we have to listen to that soundtrack, and identify ex- exactly what we're telling ourselves in that negative self-talk. Maybe identify the sources again. And then the second part is reframing that. So, so I'll just sort of recap what I do for the, the mental soundtrack thing. This is hard work, but again, it, it really requires us to listen to the messages we, we've internalized and played on a loop over and over again for really years. And this is why we need that invisible cloak and to remind ourselves when it disappears to reboot it because we've been telling ourselves this stuff for years. It's okay, um, it's not gonna go away overnight. And but but the, the step is really listening to it, writing it down, as I mentioned before, transcribing it, writing all that gross language down. And then trying to pinpoint the sources or at least situations where we felt that in the past and then making a concrete assertion or a realization that that was the past that the, that those messages are outdated for our current 2020 lawyer personas and we can choose to overwrite them or delete them. Now I know that when I step into these performance scenarios I'm going to hear some of that again. So what I need to do is have have a like a reboot. And so what the second part of this phase is rewriting that soundtrack. And and it might sound cheesy but literally writing out positive stuff that you know is true about this is not just kind of fluffy positive stuff it's it's Tangible, concrete things that you know are true about your ability and your your preparedness for that moment. So what I do now, so I always hear that that voice again. Do you you can't do this. Why are you doing this? Why do you say yes to these things? You're you know you should quit right now. I hear that, and then I kind of like the old firefighter mantra of stop, drop, and roll. I don't know why that comes to mind with this, but when I hear the negative stuff, I think okay, stop. <laughs> And I'm not going to literally stop, and ro- drop, and roll, but mental drop and roll. Yeah, mental drop and roll. And I think, okay, stop. And then I remind myself my message. My new messages go something like this: I'll say, okay, you prepared for this. You know what you're talking about. You have a right to be here. You've done the work. You have a. You have. You're entitled to have a voice. Your voice does not have to sound like everybody else's voice, and you know it's not going to. So you're. You have a right to say what you think. Your opinions have value. Now step in there and go do it. So, and it, again, it might sound a little cheesy, but that works for me. I I, I will stop my negative um, soundtrack and it will remind me that I have done the, the substantive preparation, but I've also done the mental and the physical preparation. And so I trust myself and then I just step in there and do it. Now, sometimes I might have to run through that list a few times. <laughs> Um, but, but it usually works if I couple that with the physical, which I know we'll get to next.
1: So let's, let's, let's bring that to an example then. Do you do that in the, like, let's just say if you were still a litigation attorney, do you do that in the morning? Like you're, when you're having your coffee or do you do it before oral argument or both? What does it look, what does that look like?
0: It, for me, it has to be close to the moment. And I I used to over prepare for everything. I used to Know, the night before the morning of now and this might be just because i'm older now but i also think it's part of my process i stop i give myself permission to stop preparing the day before as long you know as long as i've done the right preparation up to that point because the more i linger into that evening and that morning it just everything starts to unravel for me so i stop preparing and then the morning of i will definitely write out things in that in those journal pages but it's really about the 10 minutes before I'm walking into the scenario that those, that negative voice will come back. And I immediately will again, stop, mental drop and roll, and then run through my, my positive list of why I deserve to be there and I know what I'm talking about. So it's, for me, it has to be close in time to the performance itself for it to really empower me and invigorate me to do, do a good job.
1: So have you pre, but have you pre-written out or is it like the the positives that you want to replay in your head or is that something that you do close in time?
0: I used to write them out bef- beforehand. Now, I mean, those things that I just said to you are pretty much what I tell myself all the time now. <laughs> so I don't, I, I don't always have it written out, but if it's a, a huge, I had to give a speech to 600 people a year ago and I thought, Why do I, why did I say yes to this? (laughs) I wrote it out again and on the subway, um, I I took the subway from Brooklyn to Midtown, about 30 minutes on the subway and I just sat there. I didn't read my notes for the speech. I read my six or seven notes to myself. So it really depends on the scenario, whether I really need to see it again. But now I've gotten a lot better at, at just reminding myself, hey, no, you got this, you've done the work, you're ready to go. You, you have a voice, your, your voice matters, those kinds of things.
1: So let's talk, is the next step physical or is there something before that? All right, yes. so this is the part that I love and it's like using your physical body to put yourself in the right mental state. Is that an accurate?
0: This is huge. The, the physical part was life-changing for me. As I mentioned, I, I never considered myself an athlete I, I was on the volleyball team in high school, but I was terrible at it. <laughs> and I took tennis and aerobics classes in college and stuff like that. But I never understood how my physical manifestations of stress affected and, man- and and exacerbated the mental aspects of my stress until I started studying this. And just like we do the mental soundtrack inventory, sort of listening and transcribing, I, one of the books I read said, do a physical inventory. So when you're anticipating a stressful moment or you're in one, what is happening to your physical body? Pay attention. What's happening with your feet, your legs, your arms, you know, your, your shoulders, your head. And it was alarming to me when I realized that everything that my body instinctively does thinking it's trying to protect me from a perceived threat is not good. <laughs> so I, When I'm nervous, my body automatically tries to make me very small. So, so my shoulders cave in, I cross my arms, I cross my legs, I hunch down. Um, So I'm trying to, my body is just doing that. I don't consciously, until I started paying attention to this, I wasn't even aware, but my body's trying to make me as small as possible, as if I could just become invisible and slink out of the room unnoticed. (laughs) But what happens to me is that, because my blushing thing happens, So while I'm, my body's trying to protect myself, it's caving everything in. So my energy flow, my blood flow, and my oxygen flow is not flowing at all. It's not going in a productive direction. So my face is getting really red. My body's getting hot. My heart's beating really fast. And because I'm so caved in, I can't breathe. I never realized this is what I do. So I started practicing recalibrating all that and standing like an athlete or sit even sitting like an athlete. So I started paying attention to what athletes do and, you know, like tennis players or golf players or gymnasts, football players, boxers, whatever, or dancers stand in a balanced stance. Their shoulders are back. They're standing or sitting straight up and down. Their legs are balanced on the ground so they can move in either direction. They're not hunched up in a ball. (laughs) So I started practicing that and realizing that I could calm down my heart rate if I just sat, recalibrated my physical stance and opened everything back up again and concentrated on that. And it started working. And I, I realized that you know, my heart rate would calm. It took a little bit of time, but I could calm down. I could breathe. My blush was still pretty bad, but I read this amazing book by this woman, Erica Hilliard, And I burst out laughing when I read her description of blushing. I had never read anything helpful about blushing ever. I, and also everything I tried was terrible. So I read her thing and she said, blush, a blush is life coursing through you. So I just laughed because I'm like, okay, I'm alive. (laughs) Yay me. And then
1: you're like looking at everybody else saying you're not alive. You're not alive, but I'm
0: alive. I'm alive. I'm the lucky one because of this. So it, it changed my entire relationship. It still is embarrassing sometimes when I blush, especially when people point it out, but, which they do for some reason. But now I realize, and I tell my students this, okay, I'm turning red right now. There's nothing I can do about it. So I'm not gonna dwell on it. And, and then it goes away in, in two or three minutes. Whereas before in those depositions, it would linger for 45 minutes, an hour. It was pain, it actually hurt. So my point is do the physical inventory Realize what your body is doing—that it thinks that we're just uh, programmed to try to protect ourselves, but that might not actually be protective for people like us. And then channel your inner athlete or performer and learn how you can stand up straighter, sit up straighter, move your shoulders back, use your arms and legs, um, and and consciously focus on breathing, slowing down your heart rate, and. And just channeling that adrenaline in in a positive direction instead of the negative direction that it took from me.
1: And and that's so—that's brilliant what you just said. I I don't know, again, that we're ever taught how to, I mean, people talk mindset. And there's a lot of people here gobbledygook about that. And it's, you know, warm and fuzzies and, you know, not for me or whatever. But you can't argue with the physical. And you can't argue with the fact that athletes do this. Uh, you know, elite athletes have a process by which they get into a competitive state and lawyers can use that in the same way. And using, changing your physical body, everything about it to how you stand, your arms, how your shoulders are, whether you're smiling, looking up, looking, I mean, all of that, you can just change in a moment. And that that changes your mindset. Like there's all the science behind it. I, I don't know all of it. You said a lot. You, you, you touched on a lot of it much more eloquently than I have, but I know that there's science behind it. And it's funny because, you know, I did my morning mindset stuff. And after we scheduled this podcast, uh, I started listening. I'm a big Tony Robbins fan. Um, and I was listening to one of his episodes on this personal power program that he has, and it's dedicated to the physical. And he d- makes you do these physical exercises. He said, all right, I want you to stand up. I want you to put the biggest grin on your face that you possibly can. And then I want you to try to feel depressed while you have that big grin on your face. And I tried it. I was like, I look so stupid. I was like, looking in the mirror and I look so stupid, but I was so happy. <laughs> like. And he's the same thing. He's like you know your examples too. He was using the tennis stars as an example. They you know bounce their ball the same amount of times. They do x whatever routine they have. It's to get themselves their physicality in a spot that forces their mental state to be strong. And I love that. It's kind of like what your first step, where if you go to a part in your life where you crush and you, you're about to go into court and you put yourself in that position you know if 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 it's working out for you or maybe you're super proud of your child and you you know you saw them do something really well and you start to think about that and you put yourself there and you feel proud and your body reacts and your shoulders open up and you stand tall and all of that can help you as you walk up to the bar to make that argument like
0: yep i love that you mentioned the elite athlete aspect. I've been reading, I have been reading a lot of sports psychology books lately because I'm, I'm fascinated by this and I don't understand why as lawyers, we don't treat ourselves that way. We don't, we don't look at ourselves. Like we we look at athletes and they can have coaches for multiple different dimensions of, of their sport, first of all. Um, But also they have mental coaches, they have physical trainers, they have nutrition coaches, but, but in law, we, we sort of look down on ourselves if we need help with certain, why do we do that? These elite athletes, any athlete who really wants to be great is seeking help from all these different types of coaches and working on all these different dimensions to performance. And it's all tied together. I mean, the physical and the mental go together. And you mentioned also sort of having that ritual. Yeah. All, all the writers of sports psychology books talk about how athletes, you know, the bouncing the ball thing, or they have a, and it's not superstition. It's, it's as you mentioned, to get them in the mindset of, of po- positivity, but also trust. They, they've they done it a thousand times in practice. And this is just one more time. This is not, I used to build events up in my mind in law school and in law practice. Like it was the Super Bowl halftime show. Like, like this next question I ask in this deposition is, you know, the whole world depends who cares? It's one question. So I, I think all this ties together that if we trust our, our training and, and the work that we're doing on mindset and, and treat our lawyering activities as, as just just another performance, an important performance, but we've done this a thousand times in training. It, it at Twyla Tharp, the choreographer, says, you know, it worked then, it's going to work now. So uh, I'm sure I just butchered her quote but i'm paraphrasing twilight Mm -hmm. she talks about the same thing with dance and choreography you know i've done this before it worked i'm just doing it again and it's gonna work and i just love that
1: so but let's let's talk about the elephant in the room on this though because people are gonna be like well i'm sitting in court it's usually with 100 people other people waiting for the that same argument or the arguments behind me i can't i look like an idiot right how, how do you get yourself physically in state if there's people around you and you're five minutes out from going up to present your argument to the judge? How do you do that?
0: This is an awesome question because I used to worry about that too. I'm like, everyone's looking at me. No one cares. No one is looking <laughs> at us <laughs> because I do this in faculty meetings. I'm sitting there and I feel my heart starting to race fat because I know in faculty meetings, we have to get on a A list there's an orderly progression to the way you speak. So you know you're coming soon. And my when I know my turn is coming, my heart beats and all the bad things start to happen. So then I sit there in my chair. This is even just sitting down. So you can completely do this in the courtroom. You stop, you realize you're stop,
1: drop and roll. Stop, drop
0: and roll. In in your mind, you're dropping and rolling. And then you remind yourself of, of all the preparation. You've done all the mental stuff. And then I will sit in a chair. And I don't know if you've seen Amy Cuddy. Um, She's a professor that did a TED Talk about power poses.
1: Uh Uh-uh, I'll have to check that out.
0: And she, she talks about you can stand or sit in like a superhero pose with your hands on your hips, or like this. Um, there's also another um, action. And just you're, you
1: just put your hands behind your head, right? Yep. Like,
0: yep. Like you're standing because you're again you're opening up your frame. But this is a powerful pose, and and the, you can't see me standing with my hands on my hips. But you can sit in the courtroom with your hands on your hips, and no one is going to notice. Or kind of like you said earlier, imagine yourself doing that. Um, you know, imagine a situation where you were proud of your child, or or you did something great earlier that day. I think, I haven't tried that aspect of it, but I, I think if you, can, if you physically can't move your arms, you can imagine yourself doing that. Many times I've gone into the, the restroom at, at the law school where I teach or before a big presentation and I just literally stand in the stall doing my two minutes. Amy Cuddy says do, I think it's two or three minutes and it just gets you in that zone or that mindset. So I I'll think say it that- is doable.
1: I think the bathroom is the best. <laughs> you know, you can go in there and you can do your really deep breathing, yes. you know, at, at which, you know, can look ridiculous. A little bit of if you if you take those super deep breaths and you and you let it out with force, that bathroom is a great place for that. Yes. And yes, maybe a jumping jack or I don't know, whatever your yeah. thing is. And then when you get into court, you know, if you're sitting back in the pew, I mean, I, I, most of my courtrooms have a pew, then- inch forward Mm -hmm. so that you aren't slumped down and and it's hard to describe in an audio version but instead of being slumped down you inch forward so that your buttocks are on the edge of the pew and you open up your shoulders and stick out your chest like and you open up your throat and you can even breathe there you can do some deep breathing and no one's gonna know it's maybe the person next to you but if you sit in the back then you know you can get yourself in that state it may feel funky at first but try it what i mean what right. what's the, what's what's the harm of trying it
0: exactly and sometimes for me it's just knowing that that worked for me in the past and if i can't do it to the same degree that i did it in the past at least if i put both feet on the floor instead of crossing my legs or i like you said like sit on the edge of your chair put your shoulders back and just breathe just trusting that it worked before even if you do an abbreviated version this new time, it's, it's just part of your process. And if we trust the process, it works.
1: Yeah. And I'll even suggest something more out there too, which I've, I've, I've read about that people do for real that, like the debilitating public speaking is when you're doing your mindset training in the morning and you're putting yourself in another state is to have a cue, like maybe Mm -hmm. take a rubber band and, and pull the rubber band. So it hits your skin. So that what, every time you, pull or a rubber band around your wrist and it hits your skin, you think back at that mindset training. So it jolts you back. You can use some, phys- maybe it's a tap of the pen, whatever that physical cue may be, it brings you back to that moment. That's a little more out there, but I say if you're, if you're sweating and it's, it's causing problems in your job, try anything <laughs>
0: I don't think that's out there at all yeah. because I do. I do the same thing. So I'm I'm sort of obsessed about this particular band. I won't even say which band because everyone will roll their eyes. But I love this band, and so I I um, have gotten some of their lyrics put on a on some bracelets, and and I actually did the lyrics in a different language, so no one can even tell what it is. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and I'll wear one of those bracelets if i have something that i'm really stressed about and i know my old patterns will creep back in and and the the lyrics are etched so i can touch them like i can i can feel the the etching and instead of the rubber band i just run my finger over the <laughs> and it just again it snaps me out of my my funk and i'm able to do those those routines that you mentioned so i don't think that's out there at all i think everybody can find whatever Technique like that works for them, and it might be different for everybody, but that definitely works for me. I don't, you're the, one of the few people that knows about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I've
1: done it. Like, and, and, and I remember hearing again, I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, a lot of people poo poo him, but I think he's fantastic. And he talks about, like, you know, this testing on animals in the 80s, which he didn't agree with, and I don't agree with, but how they would raise um, the, the finger of a monkey every time. Um, he, he was given food or something and they would do it. They would do it for him. They did a hundred times and then they stopped. And there, then every time the monkey got food, he'd raise his finger and he they reconditioned his neuropsyche or something. Again, I'm not up on the science, but there is that concept of everything we do is based on your, your body, the physicality of your body. So might as well use it to your advantage, learn about it. learn how you're reacting and then use it to make you better. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: well, um, is that the last, I think that was the last step, right? That's the last step, the physical part.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: How are you doing? How do you compare your public speaking fear now versus where it was in your early law school or early legal career?
0: Oh, my goodness. I so wish I could go back and redo all all of that. <laughs> I was really not in a good place back then. I had a really rough, really decade and a half. I mean, it sounds weird to even say that much time passed and I, I didn't get better, but it was really bad. I am so happy and fulfilled now in, in my life, but also my job. But, but a lot of it's because I know I can do this now. And and it's become such an important part of my persona to do a lot of public speaking. Whereas, as I mentioned, doing that speech for 600 people last March, if that had been two years ago or three years ago, I would have said, no, I would have said, I can't, there's no way I can do that. I, there's no way I can do that. And and But I did it and I, I yeah, I was nervous about it, but I knew I could do it. it the, the 20 minutes beforehand, I was still, Pretty stressed, but I trusted that I could do it. I did it. It went really well. And I was very happy and proud of myself when I finished. And and because now I've been through that, I'm able to f- reframe um, situations I have now with 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 a, a smaller audience. So I'll I'll be nervous about doing a, a podcast or, or doing a presentation to a law school class or something that aren't my students, and I'll remind myself, okay, this is this is. 10 people in this classroom or 20 people in this classroom. You spoke to 600 and you made it, you did it, it was okay. So I, I, I'm really happy and I, I love doing this now. It's, it's still, as we've discussed, a work in progress, but even that makes me happy. I like having work to do. <laughs> I like having structures and systems and formulas as long as they work and this works for me. And it's fun to talk about too, because hopefully there are people out there who who you know now can have hope that they don't have to quit litigation they don't have to quit being a lawyer they don't have to find something else to do or even if they're not lawyers and they're just listening to your your podcast i mean you're helping people just by talking about this stuff
1: and that's why i was going to say i was going to to end kind of on that note a little bit as well is I love the fact that you wrote such a vulnerable article. I'm going to put the links um, in, in the show notes and stuff because I think everybody should read it. Really pulling from your own personal experience, the fact that you did the work, you've identified the fear, you've taken that further. It's such a great story. Even in 2020, I think people are still afraid to admit that that's a fear, especially lawyers. And listen, claims adjusters, who are a lot of my clients and some people that listen to this podcast, they have that same fear. They're in situations where they have to talk, whether it's either coming to a mediation and talking to the mediator or they're presenting a claim to you know their, their five supervisors, whatever it may be. It's still fearful. So there's this really can be applied to so many situations. And I love that part of your mission is that Uh, that you're spreading the word and being so honest and vulnerable about your situation and that people can see that there's another side to that, that they can come out and be very, not only productive, but successful. Um, So I love that. And I also love the fact that we have professors like you, because I can only imagine the, the safe space that you're creating in your classroom that, I never had in law school. It never felt safe. I was always on the edge of my seat being like, oh no, Uh, what am I going to say wrong with like a hundred of my fellow students right there? So same,
0: same. I I appreciate that. And I'm actually, I'm teaching remotely this fall just because of the pandemic. And I'm actually really excited about transferring all of that into a remote setting. I I lurk on Twitter. I'm not a, a big poster on Twitter, but I saw a law student posted on Twitter yesterday that she actually prefers online learning to the real live law school classroom because of exactly what we're talking about, that the live classroom can be so terrifying for, for a lot of us, but we don't talk about it. Yeah. And that got me excited to create a, a, a cool, interactive, positive, remote learning experience <laughs> for my students, which is you know a different challenge, but I appreciate that, thank you.
1: So just a couple of final questions, um, kind of the same, one of the same questions I ask everybody, what book are you reading right now?
0: Oh my gosh, I'm reading a lot right now. I I just finished reading a book called Flourish by Martin Seligman. He's, he's, uh, he's sort of founded positive or one of the founders of positive psychology. So that's been really helpful, but I'm also reading some sports related books because of exactly what we're talking about. I'm reading Mike Tyson's autobiography, which oh. So good. (laughs) And then I'm also reading, I have a pile. I'm reading some books by Phil Jackson, you know, the famous coach of the Chicago bulls and the Lakers and his stuff is very interesting. Kind of to your point about Tony Robbins. I, I feel like I'm learning a lot from Phil Jackson about how to inspire myself, but also other people and, and how you can tap into different people's strengths in order to bring teams and groups together. So I've, I've found that to be really helpful.
1: What's the title of his book?
0: He has one called 11 Rings. So, um, and then I, I, I'm blanking on the second book, but I can send it to you. You can put it in the show notes if you want. It's, yeah, Phil Jackson, 11 Rings. And then the second book is, it has something about soul in it, but I'm totally blanking on the, on the title. I'm sorry.
1: Well, I've picked that up. I just, have you watched The Last Dance on Netflix? No,
0: yeah, yeah. I haven't, but it's, I want to,
1: I definitely so, want to. I, I talk about mindset. I mean, that whole thing is about mindset, but what, fa- what fascinated about Phil Jackson was when they did a segment on Dennis Rodman and how he went MIA during the championship round and most coaches would flip out and he didn't flip out. He's like, that's Dennis being Dennis. That's who he is. Like he just accepted who he was, welcomed him back. Like nothing had happened. Like, I thought what a great leader is recognizing that that's what he needed in order to be good and not trying to pigeonhole him into what most other NBA elite players should be like. So I'm glad that you mentioned that I'm going to have to pick up that, but I was, I was amazed by him. So.
0: His, His writing is really amazing too. It's you feel like you're right there during all those years. He's very vulnerable in the way he writes about his own, um, journey through the nba and and as a player and as a coach it's it's really inspiring
1: i'll have to pick that up so tell everybody the, the the books that you've written and where they can find you or and the books where they can find the books
0: okay so i wrote a book called the introverted lawyer and that's that one has seven steps toward authentically empowered advocacy <laughs> that's the, the subtitle um, that book really helps introverts and naturally quiet individuals process a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, but it goes into the difference between introversion and extroversion. This, the latest one is Untangling Fear in Lawyering. So that deals really deeply into all the stuff we spoke about. All the books are available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble online, and they are published by the ABA. So if people are members of the ABA, um, they're also on the American Bar Association website. I have a website called theintrovertedlawyer.com I also love hearing from people about their stories because as you mentioned, I share mine very vulnerably. So I love getting emails or messages from folks who have gone through some of this stuff. So I'm on Instagram at introverted lawyer and I'm on Twitter as introvert lawyer. Although, as I mentioned, I basically just lurk on Twitter. I'm also on <laughs> LinkedIn. Uh, I like, I like meeting people over LinkedIn. I, that's how you and I met. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah,
1: I, I, I was telling you a story before we filmed that I had Googled. I, w- I knew I wanted to do an episode on public speaking and that fear. And I Googled it, you know, lawyers fear public speaking. And you had such good SEO that your article that you wrote for the ABA was the first that popped up. And I read it. And I have said this on my podcast before I have such such amazement for lawyers and people that are so vulnerable about what many people think are weaknesses. I think that's such a strength to put yourself out there, especially as a woman, especially as a lawyer. Uh, you know, we had Brian Cuban on here talking about his alcohol- alcoholism. You know, we've had people in there that really came in and said, you know, I didn't like being a lawyer, I hated being a litigator. And they talked about their struggles and I I have such a respect for that. So when I got that, when I saw that article, I didn't even read any further. I reached out to you immediately. I'm like, that's who I want. She's vulnerable. She's like completely an open book. And then I saw we had some mutual connections and that you, you're kind of circling a lot of my, my friends on LinkedIn too,
0: so I love it. Thank you. And well, on, go ahead. On the vulnerability point, it's it's so important for us to, to be that way because I, I felt for so many years that it was like an all or nothing thing that I had to quit jobs or quit the profession, and we don't. We don't need to do that to feel better. So I just want to make that point.
1: And I'm hundred percent with you. You know, it's just trying to figure out. There are tools out there. That can help you work through whatever it is that you need to work through not that you have to fix anything i use that word incorrectly but to help you work through it and figure out what your strengths are and really how to tackle situations that maybe you've never been taught how to tackle so i love it if, well i hate to wrap this up i feel like i could talk <laughs> for like another hour with you but if um, you are listening make sure you reach out to heidi give her a hello that you saw the episode go buy her books Uh, They're amazing. I love your mission. I love your message. Uh, So make sure you do that. Also, give us that, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on audio, give us a like, a rating, a review. If you're on YouTube, you know, do all the same thing, all the bells. I should probably know what they are, but I don't. But hit all that stuff. So we know that you like what we're doing and make sure you join us next time on the Defense Never Rest. We will see you then.